from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll tell you about a training program for healthcare providers aimed at improving health outcomes through better communication with patients. Then a Wisconsin farmer talks about his hopes for future farmers in the state. I think we need to glorify farming more. I think it's it's kind of a business that's looked down upon maybe in society or you know you're not going to make as much money that's for sure but it is one heck of a life. Plus in our Good Things Brewing series we'll highlight Milwaukee's art scene. It's a way to learn about people. It's a way to learn about them in a very personal way that anyone can relate to, that anyone can empathize with and I think it's always been for me just a starting point to get to know someone. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. The COVID-19 pandemic lay bare healthcare shortcomings in serving vulnerable groups. A program offered through the City of Milwaukee is helping healthcare providers improve public health through better communication with patients. The training covers communication strategies, health literacy, and racial equity with the goal of involving patients in decision making. It's offered through the City's Office of African American Affairs and led by the Milwaukee-based consulting group Ubuntu Research and Evaluation. The sessions are free and open to anyone who works in or is planning to work in healthcare. WUWM's Lena Tran speaks with Mikey Murray, a managing strategist at Ubuntu. Murray leads the training for the Health Literacy Program. What is this Advancing Health Literacy Program? Yeah, so um, back in, gosh, I think it was 2021, the City of Milwaukee Office of African American Affairs formed this Milwaukee Advancing Health Literacy Partnership. And so the purpose of this partnership was to help develop public health communication strategies with this emphasis on Healthy People 2030 goals. To back up a little bit, Healthy People 2030, or Healthy People in general, is a nationwide initiative that launched back in the 80s. Every five years, they come up with a different focus. And this time, their focus is involved in making sure that patients feel involved in decision-making, building communication skills, and also like this goal of checking understanding. So developing health literacy just across the board, but we're particularly focusing on Milwaukee County. And so the city approaches Ubuntu in like 2021. Did part of this, did you feel that it was like in response to inequities that we saw with COVID? Like, is that where they were coming from? Like, this is something that we need to address? Yeah, since that was a very different stage of the pandemic at that time, I think that's also when like vaccines were like really starting to become a thing. Um, COVID like being in that wave of the pandemic too really kind of like initiated this push. But additionally, outside of that, Years prior, I believe it was 2018, uh, Wisconsin was one of the first states to declare racism as a public health issue. And so I think just with all the things that were happening in the world at that time, and then this coming years after that declaration, it just made sense. At Ubuntu, our key framework is this idea of dignity. And dignity is defined as reciprocal self-worth between an individual and society. All people should understand themselves to be worthy because the people around them are worthy. And so at that basic level, that basically human-to-human connection of being like, yo, this is your body. Um, you should be as informed about what is happening to it and also involved in the decision-making as much as possible. Because as we know, if 
for example, like folks of color, fat folks, folks who are positive for STIs, like just these populations are because of the different isms and phobias in the world, more susceptible to all these different illnesses and diseases. And then of course, there's all the negative messaging around falling into any of these populations. So of course, there's just all these stigmas, right? And so a big piece of this is taking like taking those away um, and talking to healthcare providers and being like, do you even see your patients as people first and foremost? Because if you don't, that's already like, there, there's no way you're going to like involve them in decision-making, like making sure that they understand what they're being prescribed or what they're being diagnosed with. If you already are just like, okay, this is like patient number, whatever. And, you know, like you bring your own biases to it because no matter what, like we all come up under white supremacy. So everybody has biases. Everyone has received all this messaging. And so a big piece of these trainings is to one, just again, go back to that framework of dignity, right? Like if we understand one another to be worthy of access, being worthy to be seen for who we are as we are and coming into these spaces, uh, how do you again build that bridge of trust between patient and provider? And then also, again, making sure that patients feel empowered to like again, make decisions about what's happening in their bodies where they live 24-7. All of that sounds like we should just have that, but we don't because, I mean, it's super typical to go to the doctor's office and feel like really stressful and not feel empowered to like ask questions, you know, when you're like doing these trainings and you're talking to these healthcare professionals, like what's been the reception like? Are they like surprised to hear that this weird power dynamic exists? Has it been kind of a difficult reorientation some folks it's like this is the first time they've ever like really talked about it like again like people talk about inequity but sometimes I, I feel like there's not enough of that deep dive into like what does this actually mean and why is this here and so for some folks it's been like really like mind-boggling of being like oh like that actually is like a thing because yeah we're talking about COVID we're talking about different like healthcare practices and communication but also at the same time too like I've been bringing in conversations about like, so again, if we're talking about like pandemics, um, epidemics, things like that, like talking about like how COVID impacted predominantly black community, then why was that? Or even talking about like back in the eighties when um, the HIV epidemic started and how no one talked about it for the first couple of years. Cause they were like, oh, it's only impacting like this particular population of queer folks. And with COVID folks were like, oh, it only impacts people who like, only impacts people who are immune compromised or elderly and it was like should we not care <laughs> like even if you don't fall into that population like you should still care and so it's interesting because of course so many people go into healthcare because they're like I want to help people but then it's also again like amazing how easy it is to slip kind of into you know these assumptions and biases because of again the world that we're all coming up in and so one thing I'm particularly really proud of with this program is that we've been able to talk to nursing students, a lot of nursing students. And so it's been really cool hearing them be like, oh, we don't talk about this in my lecture halls. And so it's taking again, like that academic piece, but then also again, like that humanities piece of being like, okay, you're going into this field, kind of catching folks early. Um, so it's like harm prevention in a way as well, because I know I've had some very negative experiences at the doctor. And so being able to kind of come and share like my own personal experiences, these different subjects that Ubuntu specializes in. And then also like having, of course, this partnership with like other folks in Milwaukee in the city of Milwaukee Office of African-American Affairs has been fantastic in that regard. That's awesome. The city is lucky to have y'all doing this work. What drew you to this 
line of work in the first place? I love this question. So Dr. Monique Liston, who's the founder, chief strategist, and joyful militant at Ubuntu Research, I met her while I was a student at UWM. And so I've just been fangirling for a long time. And then while I was in college, I was in community engagement education with a focus in community-based organizations, leadership, and policy a mouthful. So I already knew I wanted to be in some realm of teaching, but I didn't want to do traditional classrooms. I knew I wanted to do more like community work and like creating some of those like bridges. Post-college, again, was still fangirling over Dr. Liston and kept track of a lot of her work. So when Ubuntu had this role opened, I knew I wanted to do work predominantly with other Black women and femmes. And I also knew I wanted to constantly be learning and growing and being challenged in it and very much be careful what you ask for because I got it. And yeah, I think a lot of what drove me to this work outside of like just knowing who Dr. Liston was and seeing the work that she was doing, being at UWM and being in different classes like Black feminism, psychology of racism, like those things piqued my interest and I think really deepened not only my love of education and learning, but also like being in spaces where folks are learning, particularly through being vulnerable and being like, oh, like this happened when I was 12 and this now has impacted like the way I view the world. Like those moments, I still get them daily, but like the afterwards is always fantastic. And also just being a facilitator, like navigating those conversations and creating those brave spaces with other people. Cause we try to stress brave spaces instead of safe spaces. Yeah, just can't, I just can't, yeah, you can't beat it. Mikey Murray is a managing strategist at Ubuntu who leads training in their health literacy program. She spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. Narcan, a widely used nasal spray that can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose, will become more readily available next week. Walgreens will start selling Narcan over-the-counter without a prescription. This comes after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the sale of the overdose antidote earlier this year. Today is International Overdose Awareness Day, and we'll explore how these drugs becoming more widely available could save lives in Milwaukee County and across the state. Bill Keaton is the Chief Advocacy Officer for Vivant Health. He speaks with LegFX Mallory Chang about how over-the-counter approval will save lives. How is Narcan distributed now in the Milwaukee area before this news? There's a number of different ways that folks who uh, would benefit from having uh, Narcan or Naloxone can get it. One of those ways is through our um, prevention services program, which makes Narcan available to folks regardless of ability to pay for free. So folks can uh, receive it from us directly. Also, many different uh, local law enforcement and public health departments in southeastern Wisconsin make Narcan available to folks through what are known as standing orders. Uh, basically, right now, anyone in the state of Wisconsin can get access to, to naloxone. They just need to basically show up to an organization that will provide it. So Vivant Health, for example, will make it available. No doctor's note is needed. That said, depending on where folks go to access it, they may have to pay for it. Out-of-pocket costs are not uh, unique for drugs and for prescription drugs in, in, in our country. And, and Narcan certainly falls into that space, um, which means that for some folks, cost uh, in this medication can be anywhere 20 to $40. That cost can be a barrier. 
here in Milwaukee County, this could potentially, with the new over-the-counter approval of Narcan, this could help minimize the number of overdoses we see here. And Bill, with this news from the FDA of Narcan now going to be available over-the-counter for anybody, how could selling this version of Narcan impact us here in Milwaukee? It, the unfortunate reality is that um, every year over the last five years, we've set a new record in the state of Wisconsin for the number of needless deaths associated with a drug overdose. When I started doing this work almost 20 years ago statewide, we were around 120 deaths. Here we are 20 years later, and we're seeing you know almost 1,500 statewide. And in 2021, 650 or so folks died related to overdose it's needless. Uh, it doesn't need to happen. There are ways to prevent it. You know, making Narcan and Naloxone more widely available, whether it's through the um, over-the-counter mechanism that's uh, coming down, uh, whether it's through the vending machines, those are all those are all great. Those are all wonderful strategies for getting Narcan and, and Naloxone into the hands of folks that can use them to save a life. The other thing that we really need to tackle, and this is so true in so many different public health areas, is stigma associated with, with drug use. We know that no one wakes up in the morning and decides, today is the day that I'm going to become a heroin addict. Today is the day that I'm going to uh, turn to drugs because of X, Y, or Z issue that's going on in my life. We know that there's a whole host of reasons, um, socioeconomic, psychological, psychiatric, put people in a position where they become more susceptible to drug use and unfortunately drug abuse and, and overdose. If we really want to make efforts, if we really want to make an impact in reducing the number of opioid overdose deaths that we're seeing, we need to do things to, to make sure that folks who are experiencing all of the indicators that lead up to drug use are being addressed, whether it's through mental health, social services, and, and the like. It's by doing that upstream work that we're really going to have the biggest impact. And something like making Narcan available over the counter, having it in the same aisle as the, the condoms and the aspirin and the pain relievers, does that necessarily change one person's behavior? No, but it begins to send a message to folks who have probably been marginalized in our communities, folks who've been if you will, discarded and living at, and sometimes at the edges of society, begins to normalize for them that what they're experiencing is something that they can seek help for in kind of mainstream traditional ways. Uh, it's it's going to be all of these strategies coming together that are going to be the most impactful when we get to that point of talking about what do we need to do to minimize and hopefully eliminate the number of folks who are needlessly passing away due to, to overdose in the, in the state of Wisconsin and here in southeastern Wisconsin. All that prevention work is so important. And how is Vivent Health helping the community to provide Narcan? Are there trainings available? Uh, how is that information being shared with your wider community here in the Milwaukee area? We are pretty constantly doing trainings, whether those are one-on-one -on -one, uh, trainings for individuals who are accessing our um, prevention services or community-based, whether we're partnering with a whole host of different organizations and quite honestly, we're happy to come partner with new ones as well to make those services and those trainings available. Once people go through the training, they are basically sent home with uh, a kit that includes naloxone and instructions on how to use it. So they'll get trained on how to use it. They'll be provided uh, a couple of doses to, to take with them. Our organization's commitment to providing naloxone to folks, and we do it free of charge. The training is free. The, the doses of naloxone are free. 
We've been doing this as a part of a program that we initiated many, many years ago called our LifePoint Serena Service Program. This all grew out of trying to do HIV harm reduction and ensuring that we are saving lives from, from HIV infection. What that really grew into was a recognition that if, we're, if as a society we're meaningfully going to talk about the value of all life, that has to include folks who are in the middle of addiction, folks who are struggling with opioids. And, and a death sentence should not be the outcome of a mental health or a substance abuse challenge. If someone's listening to this interview and they, they believe they have someone in their life who's, who's struggling with opioids, they can contact us. They can go to our website, get our telephone number. They can come and get the training from us. We will provide them with the, the Narcan and Naloxone so that when they walk out the door, head back to work, head back to home, they've got that, that kit with them and are going to be able to save a life in the moment should, should an overdose start to occur. You mentioned that there is a stigma attached with opioid use or being an addict and at Vivent Health. Are there any services for people to potentially receive Narcan or even to go through mental health counseling or other services to support them to get sober or to stop using? All of our services are available to folks regardless of whether or not they are continuing to use. So the first step that we want to take in kind of our harm reduction model is any positive change is is something that we want to encourage. So we don't expect uh, folks who are coming to our syringe service programs, getting our naloxone, for example, or getting uh, safer injection kits. We don't expect them to be to be clean or sober. In fact, we try and, and stay away from even using using the words clean or sober because that tends to restigmatize drug use as being something that's dirty or less than desirable. So what we try and do is meet folks where they're at, uh, do everything that we can to help them take positive steps to protect their health, and then also making sure that, that resources are available to them. So oftentimes what will happen is someone who's been a participant in our syringe service programming will come to us and say, you know what, I'm ready to make the change. I'm ready to, to either get into treatment or, or take the steps necessary. We are there to support and link them into to those services, whether it's with us or another, another provider of addiction treatment services. And then hopefully, you know, that might be one of the last times we see and interact with that person. They, they get into care, they find a, a pathway that works for them in terms of treating it. And if they've reached that point where they can stop using, that's great. And that's exactly what we have hope for. And uh, in the interim, if, if they continue to need our services, they know that we're always going to be here for them in a very non-judgmental way that's just really designed at trying to do everything we can to demonstrate to them that there is value in their life, that their life is worth protecting and celebrating, and doing all the steps we can to help them uh, achieve health. Uh, with the increased access to Narcan, more places that don't have pharmacies attached to them will be able to sell this, such as like convenience stores, gas stations, really anywhere. But it really is dependent on the store, on if they will carry it even, and potentially what they set that price as. So with that in mind, will this potentially continue creating a barrier to access of Narcan for people here in the Milwaukee area? And how is Vivent Health going to address that? Cost is always going to be a barrier, no matter where you put that price point, if there's going to be uh, there's going to be a barrier created. And that's why we're going to continue to offer uh, Narcan and Naloxone to folks free of charge. Uh, all they need to do is go through the training that we provide and make sure that that's uh, something that's uh, accomplished and then and then we can provide it. 
that said, you know, making making naloxone available, that's going to be a really important uh, thing. If someone believes that they might be at a, a party or a social gathering and, and there might be someone at risk of overdosing, if it means that they can stop at a local pharmacy or a local convenience store, pick up naloxone, even if it costs $50, if they're going to be there and, and be in a spot to help save a life, it's, it's money well spent. That said, we are concerned about the fact that, you know, uh, prescription medications, man, you know, uh, uh, drugs in this country, medicine is expensive. And, and unfortunately, those expenses continue to present uh, themselves as a barrier to folks. And that's why we're going to continue to make sure it's available free of charge. And at the end of the day, you know, we believe that it, it's very likely that just about everyone in their life has someone in it, someone who they know who might be dealing with addiction and might be struggling with opioids. Our goal is to get naloxone and Narcan into the hands of as many people as possible who can help prevent um, more needless deaths as it relates to overdose. And if that means getting folks access to that, uh, that life-saving medication through a, a local pharmacy, through a convenience store, or through one of our services at Vibant Health, um, at the end of the day, it's all about making sure that uh, more naloxone is in our communities to save lives. Thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks for all that Vivant Health does. Thank you. It's great to be here. Bill Keaton is the Chief Advocacy Officer for Vivant Health. He spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang in April. Coming up later in the show, we'll speak with Samantha Tim, former curator of the St. Kate Arts Hotel, about Milwaukee's potential as a growing art hub. But first, we'll speak with a Wisconsin farmer about his farming philosophy and vision for future farmers in the state. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Every five years, Congress negotiates to renew a suite of agricultural legislation known as the Farm Bill. It has 12 sections or titles that cover different areas of policy. Congress is currently deliberating the bundle of legislation that could have a big impact on all of Wisconsin's 64,000 farms and their operators. Michael Dolan is one of the many Wisconsin farmers interested in the bill and concerned about the future of farming. Dolan began farming in 2015 after finishing college, but his family has farmed the driftless terrain of Iowa County for more than 150 years. WUWM's environmental reporter Susan Bentz visited Dolan at his farm to discuss his practice and his vision for the future of farming in Wisconsin. He begins by describing the land he farms. As I grew up, this was uh, corn and beans and hay rotation. So it was monocrop, planted every year and harvested every year. And my grandma rented out the farm after she stopped dairy farming and before my parents bought the farm. Back those seven generations, it began as a dairy operation. It began as a dairy operation, and our store sits in the old dairy barn now. And the barn still stands, so we're carrying on the legacy. We're just not milking cows in there. (laughs) When did the beef come in and that shift from the monoculture stuff? It came in in 2007 when my parents bought the farm from my grandmother. They set out to raise their own food, so they started with 14 Murray Grays, and now we're at over... 220 head and then uh, started with a couple pigs so they started they bought three feeder pigs and finished them out that year and um, I kind of ran with that after I graduated from the University of Iowa in 2015 
as a chemist, started the pig operation, and now we're farrowing to finishing around 150 hogs a year. We're calving to finishing around 60 to 70 head of beef a year. You and your brother share the, the fields. We share the fields. We do the cropping together. He does a lot of the maintenance and mechanical work. Um, runs I'm, the big machines. And runs the big machines. That's his favorite part. He also manages a couple groups of cattle because um, we're so fragmented during the grazing season. We have rented farms. That's because you don't have enough space? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of growing into the land that we do have. We have a lot of land in transition that we are trying to figure out what to do with. We're trying to expand the grazing with and we're trying to expand the silvo pasture with. So planting trees, setting up fences, water lines and whatnot to be able to graze. So what point are you working toward to best use and conserve the land that you have or do you see ultimately adding land? Ultimately I want to be contiguous, have mainly contiguous land because in a grazing system you're not trucking cattle. Also integrating more cropping and livestock, so maybe grazing some cover crops or crop residues. Just overall integration of multiple enterprises. So you're just moving into those enterprises? For instance, grazing where crops had been? Yeah, I mean, we're in the, actually the second and third year transitions on a lot of our uh, farms that because they, we're also transitioning probably 200 acres that was corn and beans as well, and we're con transitioning it to organic and ultimately transitioning it to a grazing system. So how many acres do you have? We farm around 700 acres. And some of that you rent or lease, and, or is it all your land? Around 500 acres of it is leased land. So would it be beneficial to you to, and do you hope to buy it? That would be the dream. I mean, yeah. you look at the farmers' retirements, a lot of them, the most that's accrued the value is the land and the, the lifespan of a farmer. And yeah, I mean, eventually we would like to, especially for a lot of these silvopasture projects, you want to own the land because of the capital expense that you put into establishing a project like that. So when did you get into silvopasturing? And is that something that's been around forever? It's been around for, yeah, ever. It's just kind of gaining a, a momentum again. Trendy. Yeah. <laughs> you think back to the oak savannas and you still have those oak savannas when you go past Mineral Point area where those large sprawling pastures with large oaks all over the pastures. And those fields are too rocky. The soils are too thin to farm. So it's best for a, a grazing animal to harvest that food. I got into it in 2015 when I graduated and mm -hmm. uh, we did 12,000 fruit and nut trees planting on the home farm here on 70 acres, mainly chestnuts as our deciduous tree, but also a lots of fruit trees in the form of apple, pears, and plums, and as well as four acres of hazelnuts and poplars as our main shade tree. And that's all on one large parcel on your farmland? Yep, that's on wow. the home farm here. This farm sustains your family, your extended families? It does sustain us. It feeds us. It. Uh... I mean, I don't know it just spiritually, but <laughs> yes. I mean, do you not have to go into town and work at the grocery store? We do not. I mean, we were blessed that my stepfather put in a lot of his money from his career as an oral surgeon to get us to this point. 
but now nobody works off the farm. We're working collaboratively and we're growing food, which is ultimately the goal. How much do either state funds or, or federal programs figure into your plan in your working? Do you rely on certain programs to help cover costs? Leading up to now, we have not. Hmm. We haven't had any programs that have allowed us to do any of these practices that we've implemented. Because the funds aren't out there? They weren't out there when we were doing the projects. Now they're more available. We did sign an NRCS contract on the 65 acres across the road here to fence silvopasture establishment and water, which is exciting that we can grow the the grazing aspect. Ultimately, I feel like grazing is the most beneficial thing for the land. We're re regenerating the landscape and we're putting the carbon from the atmosphere into the soil. Everybody has their own path in the farming. We are certainly kind of ahead on, on the path on certain things like the silvopasture establishment, but I think it ultimately starts with the fact that we need more young people on the land and we need more land managers because we need to implement this on a larger scale. I see this as being a, a food production model, producing nutritious, healthy foods that could revamp our food system and produce food in a very reliable, productive way. It's part of decentralizing the food system bringing more money into our rural economies and bringing back maybe the butcher shops in our rural economies and having the high quality nutritious food that's going to feed healthy people. What are ways that we can get there? I, that's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, I think it's a combination of multiple things and especially I think it comes from education and resources for young people. The gap that is created right now to get into farming, to gain access to land and equipment and animals is so high right now for the amount of risk that we take on. There's not really insurances like there is to grow corn and beans because these systems are diverse, they're not as predictable, they're still risky, but not as risky. They're because more ultimately is the, the belief that it's more resilient, even if there's variability. Yep. Yes, absolutely. And we need to build a resilient food system. When COVID happened, big box butchers, they shut down. And what we saw was a huge influx in our business because we had food and there was a cease of production of meat for a while there. And our butcher, luckily we worked with and have a good relationship with Weber Meats in Cuba City. They stayed open and they, they were able to keep up with what our demand was. And so on paper, COVID was our best year because we were able to move everything retail instead of wholesaling. And people were going to Woodman's and other grocery stores and trying to buy 20 pounds of ground beef and they could only buy five pounds of ground beef. So they would come to us and buy 25, 50 pounds of ground beef and have it in their freezer and have food security for them and their families. I, I think we need to glorify farming more. I think it's, it's kind of a business that's kind of looked down upon maybe in society or you know you're not going to make as much money that's for sure but it's one heck of a life it's it's one of the most 
rewarding jobs in the world and it's a great place to raise a family and raise a family together and farm with family, especially in the community that we live in. Michael Dolan is a Wisconsin farmer. He spoke with WUWM's environmental reporter, Susan Bentz. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on the show, give our Community Connection Line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. We all use keyboards, but most don't know it originated here in Milwaukee. We'll explore its local roots in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll explore episode three of the Good Things Brewing series that highlights Milwaukee's art scene. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Good things are brewing in Milwaukee, and Visit Milwaukee has launched a new TV series to share these stories of positivity. Good Things Brewing seeks to show what makes Milwaukee a great place to live through the eyes of some of the city's most interesting residents. We're partnering with Visit Milwaukee and speaking with some of the guests on Good Things Brewing, and today we have Samantha Tim and David Caruso. Samantha was featured on Episode 3 as the former curator of the St. Kate Arts Hotel in downtown Milwaukee. David is the host of Good Things Brewing, and they both join me now. Welcome to you both. And um, because this is all about Good Things Brewing and we're a city of neighborhoods and we're all Milwaukee natives in the room, I'd love to start finding out about where in the city you grew up in. So, Sam, how about you? Yeah, so I actually grew up a little bit outside of Milwaukee uh, in Menominee Falls area, but always coming down to the city to explore the art museum. It's one of my many happy places in Milwaukee. (laughs) For sure. And David, I'm not sure if I found this out last time I spoke with you. Yeah, I don't think we have chatted about it, but I grew up in Wauwatosa. So my childhood was spent in Wauwatosa and I love it. I still live nearby now in Endress Park and of course spend a lot of time in the city my whole life as well. But Growing up in Tosa was really fun because it's a neat community. There's a lot happening, great schools, and it really was kind of a good place to kind of kick off my love for being a part of the Milwaukee community. Definitely. And no matter what part of town you're in, I feel like there's a great representation of public art. And we're here to talk about all about the art scene for Good Things Brewing, Episode 3. So, Sam, you were the former curator at St. Kate the Arts Hotel, and at the time you were curating when Good Things Brewing was coming out. So before we get into your work there, I'd love to know more about what drew you into studying art and some of your experience outside of Milwaukee before you came back home for that job. Yeah, I think it goes way back. I've always loved art, always loved looking at it, being involved in it. I think what draws me, has always drawn me to art, is just it's a way to learn about people. Um, It's a way to learn about them in a very personal way that anyone can relate to, that anyone can empathize with. And I think it's always been, for me, just a starting point to get to know someone. Um, You can start a very interesting dialogue with art. (laughs) And I imagine it's a way to get to know uh, a new place, because you've worked all over the U.S., right, or the world. Where are some of the places you've been? 
Um, yeah, I I went to school at UW Madison. I studied art history there, so that was kind of my one of my um, inroads into art, learning about trying to be a resource, you know, and understanding the history of of people through what we've made and our creative potential historically. So started there, started working at the Chazen Museum of Art there under their curator. Um, and then I actually went to grad school out in the UK um, in Northern England at the University of York. So I studied the history of 19th century British art. <laughs> Very, Very niche. niche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, slightly different from what you were Just curating. A little, yeah, yeah. I really dove in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and David, I know you're not directly, like, say, in an art museum space, but your work involves a lot of visual components in art. So what was some of your things that you were looking forward to when you knew, like, okay, episode three is all about public art and learning from artists and curators? Yeah, this was just such a great experience to be with Sam and Mauricio during episode three. We had so much fun going around the city. And with Sam especially, we we started enjoying a lot of the Sculpture Milwaukee pieces on Wisconsin Avenue and, and near the lakefront. And for me, I grew up in theater, and a lot of what I do now is storytelling. And it's a very creative process for me, both in TV and also in event production. So I loved this day, and this episode was filled with things that I love because, like Sam said, the the creative expression of what people are possible of doing has really enriched what our city has come to be. And our city is really known to be a very art-filled, creative place. So it was really fun. And for me, being a lover of all things creative and artistic and everything that has a little bit of extra flair. We got to see a lot of those places in the episode, and and it was just really delightful. One of those places that's filled every corner with something artistic, visual, interactive is St. Kate, the Arts Hotel. So Sam, what drew you back to Milwaukee to work in the arts? And did you feel like Milwaukee stepped up its game by the time you came back? Because you had left for some time. I feel like Milwaukee's art sure. scene certainly has grown. It hasn't always been like this. It's grown immensely. But I, th- I think there's always been just the, the right ingredients and the right people here. And I think, um, and I've been back for four years when I moved back and dove into St. Kate, something very new and different for me. But I think it just needed its time. And now we have our time and it's here. And I think... Um, just as David said, Milwaukee is such a place of rich arts and culture, and there's so much. I think what drew me back is it's home, for sure, but I just think the amount of creative potential and like a very rich, collaborative, very generous creative spirit is what I've come to kind of immerse myself in and just love about Milwaukee again. (laughs) Yeah, something you said in the episode that stood out to me is that uh, you noted contemporary art specifically is better suited for your collaborative nature. So can you share a little more about that? Oh, oh, I could speak about this for days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think working at St. Kate was a pivot for me. I wanted to try something new and I wanted to expand how I thought about art and it opened my eyes to... Um, what art can be and just the, the, you know, mostly the collaborative potential, what can happen when you're open to new ideas and, and you find an artist or another creative partner who feels the same. Um, Milwaukee as a city, you know, our character is just really extremely welcoming um, and warm and open. And 
um, I think just up for for change and for having exciting conversations. And at St. Kate specifically, my job being to work with artists to create exciting, inspiring, innovative art experiences that lends itself to collaboration naturally, you know, with like collaboration being on every level with um, my team there, you know, my managers, the guests um, who I'm having these amazing conversations with. And they teach me more about the art sometimes, you know, most of the time, actually, than I thought I knew. And but I think on the level of collaborating with artists, that's what it's all about. And everyone's just, yeah, inspired by that, I think. <laughs> it's infectious. Yeah. Well, and David, as Sam was showing you around St. Kate's and some of her other places in the city that she loves, what were you inspired by? What stood out to you? Wow, we had quite a journey together. And specifically at the St. Kate, what I really loved about our time there was the demonstration of how interactive the hotel is. And, you know, I've experienced that as a guest there. In fact, I was the first guest at the St. Kate, the official first guest we checked in <laughs> uh, by Greg Marcus. So that was fun. But we really had such a time of interacting with so many different exhibits that were in the hotel. But beyond that, you know, just the experience of the hotel rooms themselves, the sleeping rooms at the hotel is an art experience. The music at the hotel, the environment and the decor of the hotel it's all interactive and meant to get the guests to be involved in what it is to have a good time at the St. Kate. So that was so fun. One of my other standout moments from the episode and my time with Sam was when we went to Black Hat Alley. It was my first time there, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I was so inspired by that space. And it was an example of how I think Milwaukee does an excellent job of using really unique places to be filled with art. And this is literally an alley in between two buildings on the east side. It's like a corridor, actually. Um, and the walls and the ground and just everything in that Black Hat Alley environment is stimulating and it's thought-provoking. And really, the art tells a story. And we talked to David, um, who I can't remember his full name. David Najib Kazir. Yes. We talked to David about his mural in the Black Cat Alley. And it was inspired by his mother and his culture and his history. So it was a really great example of how in Milwaukee, public art is really celebrated. And I do think it's a unique a unique attribute to our city. But that really stood out to me, that experience at Black Cat Alley, for sure. What were some of your favorite parts, Sam, of being part of this episode and, and kind of thinking about, well, what do I like to do here in Milwaukee? The whole experience was so much fun. Yeah. Um, what I like to do in Milwaukee is just be out and about and walk around and look at art. <laughs> and there's so many places to do that, um, outside and inside and, and with amazing people. But I think, yeah, that time in Black Cat Alley was so much fun and just, just another flavor, taste of the creative potential and just the spirit that's just bubbling over in Milwaukee all the time. You know, and we just find places, we grow, we find places to, to put it and to activate. And that's just what we do, I think, in Milwaukee. But, yeah, I think 
some of the best times I had on the show um, were just meeting everybody, meeting these amazing people, like, you know, just having these conversations about art with David and um, learning about your perspective and, um, and just getting to share it with people. I loved walking down the sky <laughs> stair that leads down to kind of towards Lincoln Memorial Drive, towards the lake. That was just, yeah, a great memory. It was beautiful. <laughs> it really yeah. was beautiful. And uh, we also, though, stopped at Shortino's. And yes. I, I think I turned Sam on to a particular favorite cookie of mine. Um, <laughs> so that was really fun, too. And we traveled to Bayview. I think viewers really enjoyed seeing our time in Bayview as another place in our city where um, there's just, you have to look everywhere, which I loved about this episode too, because we were in a parking lot between, I think, Cafe Lulu and um, Egg and Flour. Egg and, Flour yeah. and there were murals on the wall uh, in really what is a parking lot. Chef Adam actually stopped by and joined us. So we have like a few pop-in guests too. Um, but what I liked about our time in Bayview was that it really kind of exemplified this idea that you need to look everywhere mm -hmm. because there really is art to be experienced all throughout the neighborhoods of our city. And like Sam said too, even that staircase that leads down to the lakefront has an art installation on it. So it, it's a really cool thing to remember is just keep your eyes open. Um, and this episode is a good example of, of that. Samantha Tim is the former curator of St. Kate Arts Hotel and an independent curator. David Caruso is the host of Visit Milwaukee's Good Things Brewing series. They both joined me to talk about episode three, and you can find a link to that episode at wuwm.com. Most of us use a keyboard every day, whether it's on a computer, phone, or tablet. But did you know that the keyboard was invented right here in Milwaukee? T. Krulos and Molly Schneider joined Lake Effect's Joy Powers to share the history of the QWERTY keyboard. How did this keyboard come to life? Why was it created? Well, there's a Milwaukee inventor named Christopher Latham Scholes, and he developed one of the first early prototypes of the typewriter, uh, the one that we still associate with the shape and style today. And uh, he was working on a key configuration, and he came up with the QWERTY keyboard 150 years ago. And it's still the keyboard that we use today on computers, iPhones, whatever typing device that you're using. Now, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be familiar with the QWERTY keyboard. I would be a little surprised if anyone was unfamiliar with it. Uh, but my dad used to talk about this all the time. He was a left-hander. And uh, one of the things he would say is the reason why we have the QWERTY keyboard is it's meant to slow people down. Why were they trying to do that? I guess that's the question. Uh, I think part of the reason is because it was laid out that way so the keys wouldn't jam. Because if they were in a certain place and you were typing too fast, you could the keys could jam up. So this way, with the layout uh, and also the then the suggestive of a slower type, that would again make the hammers you know hit the ribbon slower and therefore not jam up as much. Another thing I've heard too is that if you look at the first row, you can spell the word typewriter on it. So there is a story that this made it easy for typewriter salesmen to type out that word. But, um, you know, I've heard different things about the keyboard, and I'm not sure how much of it is true and how much is maybe like lore about it. But 
could be either way. One of the enduring questions I've had is, why do we continue to use it? Because it isn't exactly the most uh, comprehensive of keyboard designs. I've seen others that I went, well, I might be able to type a little faster on that one. I, I think it's just, it was invented that way, and manufacturers just passed it on, you know, from one style of machine to the next. Uh, just because it was so familiar and it was a, a layout that had already been completed. Yeah, I think it's tradition and it's being comfortable with the keyboard. I mean, it it's not the only keyboard out there. There are other keyboards, uh, but this has always been the fallback, the go-to, and the one that seemingly, even in today's world, where we don't have to worry about the hammers jamming and not hitting uh, you know, the ribbons, we don't have to worry about that anymore. It still seems to be the most comfortable keyboard for people, more out of, uh, again, tradition and practice than, you know, the way that the keys are laid out. Uh, now, I think we've seen this kind of revival of the love of typewriters. What do you think is behind that? There's certain things about using a typewriter that's different than using a laptop or something like that. Um, there is that more deliberate thought that has to go into what you're doing. One thing I love about it is there aren't the distractions um, that I face. So if I'm working on an article sometimes, I'll maybe have 10 tabs open, and I'm hearing Facebook notifications, and there's pop-ups and all sorts of stuff. But here it's really just your brain and the page together working on something. And there's a really great percussive feeling and there's this sort of a romantic vision of typewriters. If you think about your favorite old school writers behind their typewriter clacking away on these brilliant ideas that they have, I think all that's very appealing. And it's an old technology that's fun, kind of like vinyl records or uh, stuff like that. It really slows slows down the, the writing process. And just in general, with, with vinyl, it's the same thing. Like, you have to get up, you have to change the record, you have to flip the record. Um, it's the same thing, you know, you have to, with a typewriter, you have to put a piece of paper into the carriage, you have to wind it, you have to sit and think a little bit before you type a word because you want to make sure it's not as easy to delete. You know, there's all these things that slow down the process. And, you know, it's a cliche now to say this, but, you know, everything's moving so fast with technology. It's really nice to slow things down and to be forced to slow things down and to be able to just revel more in the process of writing rather than just getting, you know, 2,000 words out onto a page. Sure. Well, T, Molly, thank you both so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thanks. Thank you. Molly Schneider is a senior writer for On Milwaukee, and T. Krulos is a Milwaukee writer and author. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers and Sam Woods join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayan Silver, Eddie Morales, Lena Tran, Susan Bentz, and Emily Files from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reeve is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Blair Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Lake Effect is taking a break on Monday for Labor Day. At noon, you'll hear a special on remote work versus working in the office. We'll explore when it pays off to bring workers back and when remote work is more fruitful. That's Monday at noon, and Lake Effect will be back with a new show on Tuesday. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.